Today, we're going to start the masterpiece of the Apostle Paul, the book of Romans. The book of Romans is, I would say, a book that shaped the Western world in many respects. The fundamental question that it addresses is, what is righteousness and how do we get it? That's the fundamental question of Romans. And it is a contest. It's a debate. Because Paul has a group of Jewish leaders. The church at that time, at that point in history, was a Jewish movement. And there's some other Jewish leaders who are contesting his view of this question. What is righteousness? How do we get it? They have slandered Paul's teaching. If you were an apostle and your call from God was to go and preach this message throughout the world to all nations and to make disciples of all nations and teach them to obey the commandments of God, and you say, as in 1 Corinthians 9, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. If that was your call and your teaching was slandered in Rome, the capital of the world, the place that all roads lead to at that point in history, what would you do? What Paul does, I think what anyone would do, he defends his ministry. He defends his gospel. That is why he writes this letter to people he's never met in a place he's not been to. It's the only letter of its kind. Why? Because he is going places, making converts, and then growing them up in the faith. That's his call. He's not called to start a seminary or write theological treatises. But he writes this one because if his gospel is overthrown in Rome and that makes it out to all his other churches, his work is undermined. So he must answer the slander. In answering this question, what is righteousness and how do we get it, he's also doing something else that I think is like a, a, a second intent of the book of Romans. The first intent is to answer this slanderous charge. We'll see what the slanderous charge is in a moment. But I think the second thing he's doing is countering the pre- prevailing view of the Romans and the Roman philosophers. So on the one hand, you've got the Jews who are, I think, probably believers, but are saying, hey, the way you get righteousness is by following the law. And Paul's saying, no, it isn't. It's walking by faith. And I'm going to tell you what that means and what that looks like. But you got the prevailing Roman thought, and he's writing to Romans here, Gentiles. And, you know, the Romans had pretty much embraced the Greek philosophy and taken on Greek culture. And the Greeks had a very famous orientation towards this question. What is righteousness and how do we get it? Some historians, some philosophers say the most influential book in Western civilization is Plato's Republic. Plato, Aristotle, they predate this era by 400 years or so. The Plato's Republic asks this question. It's about Socrates having a dialogue to ask and answer the question, what is righteousness? The Greek word is diakosune. 
if you read Plato's Republic, it, it will probably be translated justice. Justice, righteousness. Well, why, why would they care about that? Well, we think of justice as somebody being put in jail or given a ticket because they did something wrong. But if a, a society is rational, they will make rules about what's right and wrong based on what brings harmony or chaos to a community. And the reason we put people in jail if we're doing it the right way or give them a ticket is to keep them from upsetting the harmony. Uh, think, think what would happen if suddenly everybody started running stoplights. Nobody started obeying traffic laws. Uh, commerce would shut down because there'd be too much chaos. So how do we, how do we achieve this harmony in society? That, that was, that's the subject of Plato's Republic. His answer is, it's when every person does what they do best for the city-state. It's when every person takes their gift and serves other people in the city-state. And this is very much in keeping with the Roman notion of national identity. I am a Roman, and that's, that's, a, that's my identity. So I think one of the things Paul's doing with this letter is writing and saying, I'm going to counter what these Jewish leaders are saying righteousness is and, where, and how you achieve it, because it's not the law, like they say. That's not right. And while I'm at it, I'm going to go ahead and counter the Roman philosophers, the Greek philosophers that the Romans have adopted, that say righteousness comes through the identity, your identity with Rome and your service to Rome. Because that's not really right either. So let's look at this book. Let's just go through it. I'm going to, as I go through this book, emphasize themes rather than every single word. But we're going to read a lot of it. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through Him, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for His name. So what is Paul's call as an apostle? To bring obedience to the faith to all nations. Now, it's interesting that this book is about how to achieve righteousness or what righteousness is and how to achieve it. And the emphasis is on in this life, as we'll see. The emphasis is on in this life. And he says here, his apostleship is to get obedience to the faith. That's why he would go to a place like Corinth, have people convert to Christianity from paganism, and then stay and teach them. Send them letters to instruct them. Because he doesn't want them just to be born. He wants them to grow up and mature. As the Great Commission said, go into all the world, teach them to obey my commandments. Obedience to the faith among all nations. He's not just called to the Jews, but to all nations, all the Gentiles. For his name, verse 6, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. 
to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called saints. Your translation probably says to be. To be is added in by the translators. I think it's better translation, called saints. And we'll see as we go through this book, he calls them saints multiple times. Why? He's talking to believers. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. He's writing to a group of people whose faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Now why would these people's faith be spoken of throughout the whole world? Well, the whole world is talking about Rome at this time. Okay? Anything that happens in Rome gets talked about throughout the whole world. And being a Christian at this point in time, at this moment in history, is not a convenient thing to do. It's not something you would do to get ahead. It's an illegal thing to do. And their faith is shining notwithstanding. I thank God because your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his son that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers making request if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. He's not been there before. I've heard of you, that your faith is spoken of throughout the world. World, I really want to come. Why does he want to come? I long to see you that I might impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. I want to grow you up further from where you are. Your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. When is the time when we don't need to grow anymore? Yeah, when they plant us in the face with a spade, right? That's when the time is over. I long to see you. I may impart to you some spiritual gifts so you may be established. That is, I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith of you and me. I want to establish you and you can impart gifts to me and we can be mutually encouraged. How could an apostle of God be mutually encouraged? Well, of course he could by people whose faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren. I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. I'm a debtor both to Greeks, barbarians, wise, unwise, so as much as me, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. Now, if we've got people who are believers with a mutual faith, whose faith is spoken of throughout the whole world, that Paul wants to be encouraged by, why does he want to come and preach the gospel? Because we all know gospel is the four spiritual laws. And once you have accepted Jesus into your heart, the gospel's finished. You don't need gospel anymore, right? We know that. And not only that, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God to salvation. And we all know that salvation is... Professing belief in Jesus on the cross, especially at a Billy Graham crusade with the music going. And if you sign a pledge card to say you've done it, then that makes it double special. We all know that, don't we? Why would he want to Billy Graham people whose faith is spoken of throughout the whole world? Is it because they lost their salvation? Is it because he wants them to get saved again? Double saved? What is going on here? Well... 
These words have been given technical definitions by theologians that do not match how they're used in the Bible. So let me talk about salvation first. Salvation or save is a translation of the Greek word sozo or soterio. I'm going to give you the first instances of sozo in the New Testament. Let's go to Matthew 1. Verse 21, Matthew 1, verse 21. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Okay? So this is delivering people from sins. Jesus delivered us from sins. We're very familiar with this application of the word. Uh, does he only deliver us from sins as between us and Jesus? I mean, us and the Father, or us and God. Or does he also deliver us from sin in this current life? Well, it's both. And the, the part that Romans emphasizes is the in this life part. Let's look at 8.25, the second instance. All right, so what's happening? He, he, he's in the boat. The disciples say, Lord, save us, we're perishing. So he's in the boat, and there's a storm. And what do the apostles, what do the disciples want? They want to go to heaven. We're about to die, we need to go to heaven. Fire up the Billy Graham music. Put on just as I am. Is that what they're saying? No, they, they don't want to die from the storm. Okay? It means to be delivered from something. Let's look at 9.21. Verse 9.21. This uh, lady has had a discharge of blood for 12 years and comes up behind and touches the fringe of her garment. She said to him, If only I touch her garment, I will be saved. That's what it says in the Greek. The translator says made well or healed. Now, why did they translate that made well instead of saved? Because the context says she's being delivered from sickness. And that's the way the word saved is always used in the Bible. Something is being delivered from something. If I tell you, hey, an amazing thing happened today. Something was delivered from something. And it was changed the world. What would you want to know? What was delivered from what? And if I said, you know what? The President of the United States was delivered and it changed the world. What would you want to know? What was he delivered from? Something was delivered from something. The lady was delivered from sickness. The disciples were delivered from drowning. The whole world was delivered from the power of sin. That was broken when Jesus came to earth. That's how the word is used. So, if we go back to Romans, when, when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, that's euangelion. Did I say that right, Brandon? Yes. I did it once. Euangelion, it shows up 13 times in Romans. And that, again, is not a technical term. It means good news. 
Is the only good news that's ever happened on the face of the earth that Jesus died for our sins? Is that the only good news there is? Well, he'll tell us what his good news is. He's going to tell us. I want to come and, and tell the good news of Christ to you whose faith is already spoken of throughout the world. Why? Because it will build you up. And here's the summary of it. And it's interesting that this summary is not disputed. This is the summary of Romans. I, everybody seems to say, yeah, this is the summary, but they don't seem to pay attention to what it says, my view. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, the good news of Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation, deliverance, something's delivered from something, for everyone who believes. So how do you get delivered? Believing. For the Jew first, also the Greek. That will become important as we go through here. There's, there's, there's Jews and Greeks, and the same is for both. Okay, So they're both mentioned, but the same is for both. For in it, it is... The good news. So what is the good news? What I have? The righteousness of God is revealed. So what is righteousness? How, does it, how do we get it? It comes from the good news of Christ. And we get it through the good news of Christ. That's how we get righteousness. And how, does it be, how is it appropriated? Not just by faith, but from faith to faith. Some, some translations say, from faith, from first to last. How are you born into the family of God? By faith. How do you become righteous in your experience? By the righteousness you received as a gift. By faith. It's from faith to faith. As it is written, then he quotes Habakkuk 2.4, the just, the righteous, the dike shall live by faith. Shall what by faith? Be born by faith? Be converted by faith? Become a Christian by faith? Not go to hell by faith? What does it say? Live by faith. Because this is a book about how to achieve righteousness for believers whose faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. That's what the book is about. Let me give you a little word count fun to uh, bolster the point. What, what Paul's going to do in this book is he's going to contrast the notion of getting righteousness from obeying the law to the righteousness by faith. And Paul's going to say the law is something you look at so that you can change your heart and mind, not something that you follow. Because what always happens with laws and rules is you always end up justifying your behavior. We, we have a law in our country against insider trading. It's not fair if you have inside knowledge and you trade on that because you're taking money from people that didn't know that information. It's a law. However, inside trading is rampant in our country. Why? Because Congress exempted themselves from that law. So there's a whole industry of people that come and get insider trading information from the congressman and act on it, and that's not illegal. And it justifies their behavior. And they have all manner of, re of ways of justifying themselves. And that's what we do. We find loopholes and we say we're obeying the law but still getting what we wanted in the first place. That's, that's how legalism works. The law doesn't change hearts. So it doesn't bring righteousness. That's going to be Paul's overriding argument over and over again in this book.
But faith is something that changes hearts and minds. When you believe, it changes you from the inside out. He's going to tell us you fulfill the law when you walk in the Spirit. So it's not so much justifying yourself from the law. That doesn't work. It's having the law become a part of your heart and soul and pour out. That's the way righteousness is achieved. That's what this book is about. So you got on one side, he'll have things like law, death, slavery, sin. That's all part of one category. The word law shows up in these 16 chapters 77 times. Death, 24. Slave or slavery, 18. Sin, 51. You add those things up, 170 instances of law, death, slave, sin. 16 chapters. An average of 11 times a chapter. On the other hand, he contrasts that with freedom. Freely given. Grace. Some notion of freely given. Faith. Live or life and righteousness. Sometimes unrighteousness. Free or grace or freely given. 41 instances. Faith or believe. 51. Live, life. 28. Righteous. uh, Some derivation of that. Just. Justice. 53. 173 instances. So 170 times, he says, law, death, slavery, sin. That's what all, th- all those things go together. That doesn't bring righteousness. Freedom, grace, freely given. Living by faith brings righteousness. That does bring righteousness. 170 times each. You know how many times the word hell, Hades, Lake of Fire, Tartarus is in the book of Romans? Zero! None! It's not there at all! You know why? These people aren't going there! They already believe. Their faith is spoken of throughout the whole world, for heaven's sakes. He's defending himself against slander. He's not trying to get these people justified. He's going to talk about justification. You can find out how to be justified from this book. Why? Because it's part of the gospel. You've got to understand the whole thing to understand the question of what is righteousness and how do we get it. Heaven's in here twice. Once he says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And another time he says, you don't have to get an angel out of heaven to explain this. It's not that hard. Quoting Deuteronomy. Why in the world do we say he wrote this so that we would have a Roman road? I'm thankful for the Roman road. It's a great way to explain the gospel to newcomers so that they can be born. Awesome. That's not why he wrote this book, and it's not the emphasis. This book is about living. Living by faith. Now, look what he does the first thing. He said, I want to come to you. I want to explain this gospel. I want to build you up. And the gospel, because the gospel is all about living by faith and becoming righteous by living by faith. What is righteousness? And then the first thing he says is, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, this is 118, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And why would he say that next? Why, why, why would he talk about this? Well, who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. 
For uh, what is seen since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen. His eternal power and Godhead. Uh, they don't pay attention to that. They don't glorify God. They're not thankful. They just blow Him off. So what does He do? What does God do? He gives them His wrath. What does His wrath look like? Well, the wrath of God is always fire from heaven, right? Sodom and Gomorrah. Plagues. It boils. That's the wrath of God, right? Trap door opens up, you go to hell. You're gone. That's the wrath of God, right? Not usually. That does happen. You know, the earth did open up and swallow some people. It happened. That's not normal, though. The normal wrath of God is the horrific, hideous, and ever-to-be-avoided reality of Him giving you what you ask for. That's the normal wrath of God. And here it comes. Look at 124. So therefore God gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts. So you have a lust for something? I really want this. I re- no, no, you can't have it. Oh, come on, I really want this. God, I re- you can't have that. It's bad for you. I really want this. You can't have that. It's bad for you. I really want... Okay, you can have it. You can have what your heart lusts for. That's step one. And they get dishonor in their bodies. And so to verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. This is stage two of the wrath of God. So now you've got a lust, and you get the lust, and now I think we would call this an addiction. So now you're addicted to it. What seemed like a good idea now doesn't seem like a good idea anymore. And you're stuck in it. And you're looking for a way out. Or maybe you're denying you have an addiction. And now it's really tough to get off this hamster wheel. And if you stay on it, now He gives you up to a debased mind. You can't even think straight anymore. Now maybe you think your addiction is an entitlement. And you can't even think right. This is what unrighteousness gives you the wrath of God. Who wants to sign up for that? How many hands will shoot up in the air? So what's he doing here? He's building a case for why you want righteousness instead of unrighteousness. What's going on? What's he doing? Well, he is building a case. He's building a case to answer slander. And let's look at 3.8. And I'll show you what the slander is. He's building up to this. He didn't start off with, these people have slandered me and I'm going to answer. This, he's very, this is an incredibly clever letter. He doesn't get to the slander until he's laid some basic foundations that overturn the slander multiple times before he ever even gets to it. Verse 7, For if the truth of God is increased through my lie to His glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? Why not say, let's do evil that good may come? As we are slanderously reported. And as some affirm we say, have you ever been slandered? What did you think about it? Did you blow it off? Think, eh, doesn't matter. Well, actually, Paul's not being slandered here. His gospel's being slandered. And what is the slander? 
They are reporting to these Roman believers whose faith is being spoken of throughout the whole world. They, somebody they, these Jewish leaders. We'll, we'll, we'll meet them in more detail later. They're saying, you know what Paul teaches? He's teaching you ought to do evil. Because if you do, good will come of it. Now, why would they say that? What is Paul teaching that would cause them to characterize that? Has Paul made it clear he's not for evil? Man, he starts out right out of the bat, right? We want righteousness. We want to know how to live righteously. And the first thing he says is, I don't like unrighteousness. Why? It makes people animals. They can't even think right. And look at, he even outlines in 1, 28, he goes through an outline of what, the, what he's talking about. What are we talking about unrighteousness? Well, sexual immorality, wickedness, this is verse 29, covetousness, maliciousness, envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, Boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. Wrath of God is revealed from heaven against those who are disobedient to parents. That's a good one we all ought to memorize. Undiscerning. Do you want the wrath of God to be rained down on you, Johnny? I like that one. Knowing the righteousness judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death. And what's he going to tell us later? What are the payments for, for sin? What's the wages of sin? And that's what all these things bring, death. Sin, death, law, slavery. They all go together. So, is Paul for sin? Of course not. But they're saying he is. Why would they say that? What is it that Paul teaches that causes them to characterize that? Well, let's look at 520, and I'll show you exactly what Paul teaches he builds up to this. He doesn't start off with this. He builds up to it. But this is what Paul teaches that causes them to say, well, you say we ought to sin then. 520, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. You know how to create more crime? Pass more laws. Some people have uh, estimated that the average American commits three felonies a day. Because there's so many laws. Nobody knows it. They're not enforcing them. Okay, but... we I mean, you've talked about the tax code. Nobody even knows whether they're breaking the law or not. I mean, TurboTax might break the law. We don't know. We can't understand it. Okay? So, law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Every time we sin, God's grace mounts up one more notch. You can't out the grace of God. Why? Because Jesus' death paid for everything. Everything. All of it. And every time people sin, His grace just gets bigger. Now, Paul, you can't mean that. You cannot mean that. That would mean that I could become a Christian through simple faith and then sin the rest of my life and still go to heaven. That's what that would mean. Yep, that's what that would mean. 
Well, you can't mean that. That would mean that I don't have to obey the law. Yep, that's what I'm saying. Well, if we teach people that, they're going to sin like crazy. We, we have to give them rules so they won't sin. Well, how's that been working for you? <laughs> you know, we tried that for a few hundred years. And we, we didn't do too good at it. You know why? It doesn't work. Well, I, 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 ju- I just can't buy that. You, you can't mean it. We're going to oppose you. You know what Paul teaches? He teaches... You ought to sin because every time you sin, God's grace goes up and you're doing God a favor by showing how great He is. That's how wicked the teaching of grace is. We've got to have rules. If we don't have rules, we don't have righteousness. Because everybody knows rules is about length of quiet time. <laughs> righteousness is about how early you get up and how often you devotional. How is your devotional life? Is your devotional life demonstrating that you're a real Christian? I know I am. What shall we say then? He says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Of course not. Why? Well, who wants the wrath of God? We were delivered out of that. Why do you want to go back in it? Can you? Of course you can. You're a free agent. Is that about the dumbest thing in the world? So you, you, you were a slave, a galley slave. You're rowing, you're rowing the galley ship as a slave. Somebody comes and unshackles your chains and gets you out. Do you long for the good old days? That's about the dumbest thing in the world. You're a slave. You have no freedom. You've got to work every day. You've got to do the same thing over and over. Gosh, I wish I could go back and plow the potatoes again. What are you thinking? You were buried in a coffin. You were dead. And now you're alive. You want to go back and be a zombie? What? I mean, it's just it's crazy. Can you? Yeah, well, you're welcome to it. Why? Because God made you where you can choose. C.S. Lewis says, we are most like God when we're making choices. Because that's what we can do the animals can't do. Why, why, do, the, why do the animals do what they do? Nobody knows. You know what we call that? Instinct. Instinct be, they do stuff and we don't know why. Why do we do stuff? We always have a reason for it. The normally bad reasons. Why are you destroying yourself? It's best for me. That's our normal, that's our normal approach. So look what he's done here. He's come in and says, Hey, Romans, man, I love you guys. I love you because you're so righteous. Your faith is being spoken of throughout the whole world. Man, I wish I could come to you and be built up and encouraged. And, and, and I've got a, a, a worldwide gift God gave me. I'd love to impart it to you. You, you know why? I, I'd like to impart it to you because I'd like to build you up. And, and I want to show you how Righteousness comes by faith. Because that's the essence of the gospel. It's power for you to be delivered from sin in your daily life. Not just sin in your relationship with God familially. We're, 
we're going to establish in this book that that's taken care of completely without our efforts by Jesus Christ's death on the cross, but also experientially that you take this gift of new life that you have and live the life of Jesus, resurrected Jesus, every day in your life. That's where righteousness comes from. And I want to show you how that happens. Because righteousness is good and unrighteousness is bad because it brings God's wrath. And we didn't go to chapter 2, but we'll see it soon. That you got these Jews coming... And they're telling you all how wonderful the law is. Only problem is they don't keep it themselves. They are, in fact, themselves blasphemers. The word that's translated slander, as we're so slanderously reported, blasphemo. They're blaspheming my gospel. And he says in chapter 2, they are actually the blasphemers. Because they're blaspheming the gospel because they say, This is how you become righteous and don't even do it themselves. And those same people have slandered my gospel and you shouldn't listen to them. And then he kind of culminates that whole argument, his introductory argument, by saying, back in uh, chapter uh, 3, can't find it. Am I better than they? Where does it say am I better than they? Nine? Oh, thank you. I was in the totally wrong part. So he says, And why not say, Let us do evil that good may come, as we are slanderously reported. Some affirm we say, These guys who blaspheme the gospel by their behavior are blaspheming my gospel. Their condemnation is just. Well, what then? Am I better than them? Is that my argument? Their argument is they're better than me. Is my argument, no, no, I'm better than them? No, my argument's not that at all. We've previously charged both Jews and Greeks were all under sin. You know, why is it that we can sin and God's grace will still abound? It's because we do sin. Some we're aware of. Some we're not. Who do you know that doesn't? We're we're all doomed if we have to get to the point where we can follow the law because we can't. What we can do is renew our hearts and minds. And Paul says, I'm not saying I'm better at all. I'm saying we're all in the same condition, me included. Nobody's righteous. Nobody can do this on their own. What we have to have is the substitutionary death of Christ to give us a new life and then live the substitutionary life of Christ. And what this book is about is how to live the substitutionary life of Christ. Because that's done by walking by faith. So Paul is going to show us how to live the substitutionary life and he's going to give us the theological basis for it, the philosophical basis for it, the scriptural basis for it, and he's going to show us what it looks like. Plato gave us the logical rationale for how to live a righteous life. And it doesn't really stand up. Paul gives us the biblical way to live the righteous life. And it does stand up. And to the extent the West has been blessed, it's been because of this book.
and the concepts in this book. And to the extent we're not blessed, it's because we don't follow this. The extent to which we as people are blessed. And I'm not talking about material blessing. I'm talking about having a fulfilled life. It's because we practice the things in this book. And when we don't, we get what we wanted. Which is the worst thing that can happen. And that's where we're going to be in this series. God, thank you for this amazing book, this amazing character, Paul. This incredible message. The substitutionary life that we can live your life in our daily experience and get all the fulfillment that comes from it. As we go through this and we see what that looks like, I pray that we'll just believe and do. Some we already do, perhaps knowingly, perhaps unknowingly. But I pray that this would give us a deliberate way to do it consciously and with great diligence and faith knowing that it is your life for us and our best. Please help us avoid uh, trying to get you to bless what we want. And bless us by seeking your heart and finding out what you want. In Jesus' name, amen.